Hello, I'm Professor Bob Hewish from the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. You're listening to GDP, the Global Development Primer, the podcast dedicated to all issues in international development studies. Follow me on Twitter at Professor Hewish. Welcome to a very special episode of GDP, the Global Development Primer, where we have two special guests joining us for this episode. We have Catherine Nolan, who's a professor of geography and chair of the geography program at the University of Northern British Columbia in Prince George, British Columbia. Catherine was recently made a fellow of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, and since July 2020 is also the chair of the Conference of Latin American Geography. Uh, CLAG is a premier organization for geographers engaging in research in Latin America and in the Caribbean, and it works to foster foster research, education, and service related to Latin American geographical studies. Catherine is a longtime insurgent researcher and social justice advocate, including more than 25 years of grappling with the afterlives of the Guatemalan genocide. Hello, Catherine. Welcome to GDP. Hi, Bob. Great to be with you. Great, thank you. And we've also got Graham Russell joining us. Graham is a non-practicing Canadian lawyer and, since 1995, the director of Rights Action, an organization that works in Honduras and Guatemala in support of community, environmental, human rights, and territory defenders resisting widespread harms and often deadly violence caused by different sectors of the global economy, including mining, hydroelectric dams, African palm, sugarcane, bananas, coffee, tourism, and the garment industry. Rights Action carries out education and activism work in the United States and Canada and focuses focuses on how our governments and companies and the U.S. military often contribute directly to and benefit from human rights violations. Graham is also an adjunct professor in the geography program at the University of Northern British Columbia and since 2004 has worked with Catherine Nolan to co-lead delegations and field schools to Guatemala for Canadian university students. Graham, welcome to GDP. Uh, Thanks very much for having me on. Real pleasure to have you both here and it's uh, quite the time that I think you both had uh, earlier this year in, in 2020 when you co-edited a volume together titled Canadian Mining in the Aftermath of Genocides in Guatemala, the Violence, Corruption, and Impunity of Contemporary Predatory Mineral Exploitation. The book passed peer review and was ready last February for publication, but after several months' delay, Springer Nature notified you that after a legal review, it had decided to cancel their contract and return the rights to the manuscript to them, and it cited liable concerns. Catherine, what uh, what happened here? <laughs> well, that's the question that we're we're trying to grapple with. Um, thanks for that question and laying out the the situation. Yeah, back um, in 2017, we signed um, a contract with Springer. Uh, they accepted our book proposal to do this work, which is is a co-edited book bringing together people we've worked with in Guatemala for many many years, including you know journalists. Um, community members who live in mining-affected communities, uh, artists, journalists, lawyers, and and so on, trying to bring all these uh, voices together to look at the serious situation of of, uh, mainly Canadian mining company-related human rights violations uh, that include forced evictions, repression, um, health harms, environmental harms. And... uh, 
mining-linked impunity and corruption. And as that was the proposal we put forward, and we signed that contract, we spent the next few years putting that together. And finally, yeah, we, we went through all the peer review process. We um, were expecting to see the page proofs and have the book published before this past summer. Um, but we, we really met this wall of silence after we um, initially submitted the book. The, the initial submission in February, the final version, um, our book editor was really pleased with it, felt it was well-written, um, it was going to be a good fit. It was going to be a successful title. Um, but then kind of communication stopped as we eventually heard that it was with um, their legal department for a libel review, which makes sense. Um, but after a lot of back and forth of us asking what was happening and what they were concerned about, what we might be able to address, uh, we received this uh, response in July that finally said that they were not proceeding with the book, that it was full of unsubstantiated defamatory content, presented them with um, concerns about um, being sued, potentially, and that they were going to return the rights to us. And when asked what what that meant and what part of the book or what component, what sections, what sentences were of concern and how we might uh, work with them to address that. They, we just received no response. They wouldn't communicate with us or talk to us on the phone or, or anything like that. And after uh, you know several, I think, really professional but pointed uh, emails asking for clarification, uh, we we received a reply saying, "Well, the third party might sue us if if uh, we proceed." And so we've spent the last few months trying to find out from them who that third party might be, and. Um, why an academic publisher would potentially, I guess, cave to that sort of pressure um, to publish a book that might be, which is critical of, of uh, Canadian mining companies and their operations. So the, um, the question you ask is one we're still trying to determine what really happened here. Right. So, Graham, your, your uh, rights action, uh, the, the group, You've got a, a lot of work that you've done with issues of human rights related to to mining companies. So, is there something that uh, mining companies should be worried about that was in the content that you put forward, or is there something that uh, that mining companies are trying not to have exposed? <laughs> well, probably yes and yes, but I, I would just add a, a quick point to Catherine what Catherine's, um, her first response, and that is that whereas um, Springer referred to a legal review of the book, we never saw a copy of it, and they would never share it with us. And then through this process, Catherine opened communication with the Canadian Association of University Teachers, I think that's the name of it, mm -hmm. and they offered to fund a proper legal libel study uh, of the book in Canada, and then one of Canada's leading libel defamation lawyers reviewed the entire book, as Springer allegedly did, and he concluded that there was no defamation whatsoever and suggested some minor, easy-to-fix tweaks to the book. So mm -hmm. I'll, I'll throw that into the mix, but we they refer to a legal review, but they never, we don't know if, we actually don't know if it actually happened or not, and we certainly didn't see it. 
Um, but depending right, on it would, or, or go yeah, ahead. It would seem if it was if it was conducted that you'd be kind of proud to show, hey, we've got this we've got this very clear legal review that shows just just these gleaming errors in the book. But if it doesn't exist, that seems quite scandalous. Right. Well, I, I guess that was that's what pushed us to take a more public position. We were fairly certain the book wasn't defamatory or <laughs> full of unsubstantiated information, but we were, as part of a publishing process, very open to receiving sort of concerns and then seeing if we could address them. And as Catherine said, we got none of that. But it was a real sort of confirmation of our, a reconfirmation of our underlying beliefs that what we're, what we're setting out in the book is true. Um, it was a real reconfirmation when a Canadian lawyer did his own study of the book and uh, agreed with us. Um, mm-hmm. Which perhaps leads to your, your question as well, like w- what is there in the book for uh, Canadian mining companies to, to, to be concerned with? And, and listen, to be fair, we don't know if this, <laughs> who, who the third party is. We don't know who did the possible silencing of the book, the quashing of the publication. We just suspect that someone or some interest did. And it may or may not be um, a Canadian company. The book deals, though, though the title of the book is about Canadian mining in Guatemala in the aftermath of genocides. Um, there's more than just Canadian companies dealt with in the book. Some of these are Canadian-American companies. And then one of the uh, mining interests was sold more recently in 2011 to Swiss mining interests. And so um, so what would be the concern with the publishing of the book? I think it's just simply that um, they our, our conclusion our our factual information and our analysis and conclusion were just too clear and too strong for their liking and so to put mm-hmm. it in one nutshell it's a conclusion of ours and we've we've held it for a long time but this book documents it that there really is no way for a, a global mining company to operate a mine in a country such as guatemala and not benefit from impunity, not participate in and benefit from corruption, and not violate human rights and engage in some degree of violent repression against the local communities. Like We put that out as a clear conclusion of ours based on the information, and that's a fairly comprehensive uh, conclusion. And I think that... Uh, whoever the third party is or third parties are, they just didn't want one more sort of piece of information out there, publication out there, documenting precisely all those things. So really, that's well put, Graham. I mean, when you say it like that, the thing that comes to my mind is sort of the the brand Canada that, that gets associated with many Canadian-based mining companies that have really put a lot of effort into charitable work and to foundations that are de- fund hospitals and other sorts of, uh, you know, and, and, and faculties of uh, on campus and campus buildings that are all connected to that to try to keep the brand going. But if, as you say, and, and if, you know, a good thorough analysis of the historical and social geography of the region shows that, that yes, people have to be hurt in order for these operations to come about. Seems like it's going to really create a, a an ethical quagmire 
uh, not just to the mining companies to be in question, but back to that brand Canada. That uh, you know, these are companies that, that people invest in, and there's uh, there's pensions plans that are attached to their uh, to the shareholding of it, and maybe it's it's about really getting at a at a deeper, more ugly uh, yeah. side of, of the, the Canadian version of globalization. Well, let, let me Can jump in on that and then pass it on to Catherine. But the, you've touched on also what is almost the subtitle of our concluding chapter. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember, I don't have the words in front of me exactly, but the concluding chapter is, is that the mining viol violations and harms and corruption and impunity set out in this book are not Guatemalan problems. They're fundamentally or pr profoundly Canadian problems. And I think mm -hmm. this goes to the bigger issue that you're, you're addressing there with your comment that so often, if we even hear about these stories in, in, in the media, which is rare, they're presented as a Guatemalan issue. And yeah. it's almost the opposite. These are, I, I think, for the Canadian mining companies involved in this book, and there's companies like Gold Corp, Glamis Gold, Hud Bay Minerals, Sky Resources, Inco, Tahoe Resources, Pan American Silver, Radius Gold. I don't think, they don't care where the minerals are. They will they will do anything they can to get at them, produce them and sell them for profit. And that's simply what it's about. All of the important corporate and investor decisions are taken in Canada or in the headquarters of the company. And, and all of these are taken, and this is an arguable point, but to one degree with or another with the full support of the Canadian government through foreign affairs or global affairs, and then through the embassy in, in Guatemala, which for many years almost worked as, a, as an open door cheerleader for the Canadian mining industry. So it takes one small incident, one company, one community, to a very broad, <laughs> widespread Canadian issue. And we should yeah. be holding ourselves accountable across the board. Catherine, what are, you, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I was reflecting on some of the conversations we've had over the last many years and, and more recently about um, the kind of violations and harms that are documented in the book and in so many conversations that we've had in different parts of the country in, in Guatemala. Um, you know, what we're documenting are serious crimes and, and violations uh, that have taken place in the course of we... we um, cover sort of four main mining struggles in different parts of the country. And and folks who gave testimony in our book are people who have been criminalized for their resistance to the imposition of, of you know, mines in their communities or mining activity in their communities. They've been jailed. They've been attacked. They've been shot at. They've had their homes burnt down, forcibly evicted in, in, in one, you know, extreme case of the, the gang rape of of uh, eleven women in the community of Lateocho near near one of the Canadian mines. Um, these are serious crimes, and when we think about the 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 challenge that that this company has presented with us, Springer, with this book documenting these crimes, um, really, this is a well. It, it appears to be kind of the 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 opposite end of all of this, right? There's a spectrum of how threats and uh, intimidation happen and the folks we work with are at the most extreme end uh, this I think we're in a position to be able to denounce this write about it and now say the way in which 
you know, even getting this information out can be seen as, as threatening and certain kinds of, of behavior, you know, happen. So I think um, that's why we've been pushed to be public about this rather than just go away and try and find another publisher. I think it highlights the way in which uh, this happens. Uh, and these are decisions that are made in, you know, boardrooms across Canada, not, uh, uh, you know, with partners on the ground elsewhere. Absolutely. And, you know, which is, as we're talking here, uh, I keep coming back just to think about the idea about, you know, what is the, what is the impetus uh, to, to put in for a legal review of liable concerns? And, you know, Graham, I'm not a lawyer, so please call me out on this, but my understanding of, of defamation is when you, you, you write something or you orally communicate something that is false about uh, a party or an individual that causes unjust harm to their reputation and that usually creates issues of um, you know constitutes a tort or, or a crime and i think only it's a well south korea for sure there you can even have a true statement be considered defamation and you know in saudi arabia if you defame the state or, or a past or present ruler uh, you can be punished by by terrorism uh legislations there but I think that what's really perplexing here, and Catherine, I want to ask you about this, um, is, is this about idea about academic integrity? I mean, to, to be clear, you were editing a book where that was co-edited, uh, so you've had other people contribute to the volume. You did peer review on it. You did all the right protocols to show integrity, mm-hmm. and yet there's this, this, this attempt to silence. And what does this... What kind of message does this give to to other scholars or to young scholars who want to deal with issues about human rights uh, or abuse or really contentious uh, topics like this? Yeah, this creates would potentially create a real chill, and I think that's why, um, as we uh, Graham mentioned earlier, the Canadian Association of University Teachers. Um, Brought, uh, you know, wrote to Springer themselves to for further information. They've never received a reply on 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 their you know important questions about what went on. Um, but they also brought a resolution to their national council membership last week, um, in which they uh, it was a unanimous vote because I think for academics across the country this. Um, this is a you know a real silencing uh, of academic freedom and our rights to conduct and disseminate research free of of uh, any sort of uh, threats for, or intimidation by uh, corporations, for example. And so their resolution at that for you know which is a message to all academics across the country really is that for you know calling for the organization to condemn the actions of Springer nature and to make this matter, you know, bring this matter to the attention of the academic community and the broader public. And, and so they've put out their own statements as well. I think we have to stand up against this kind of, um, um, you know, pressure or potential pressure. Um, again, we do not know, as Graham said, they did not provide us any evidence that they actually did conduct a legal review. And, um, and instead it was, uh, you know, a bunch of, uh, what would you say, uh, accusations that we were not, uh, we were not being straightforward and clear and honest in our work. And I think that's, uh, 
pretty outrageous for an academic publisher. Mm-hmm. Graham, are there are there lessons here? Are there cautions or are there words of wisdom that you could <laughs> you could provide to other writers uh, who want to take on these issues and publish work that's along this line? I mean, is it something to say, well, uh, be be ready for this kind of response, or what? What would you what would you give for advice to uh, to people who want to engage in this field? Um, I'll try and answer that, but just a few follow up comments. The um, you know you can almost turn the question of the defamation as to who's defaming who in this situation. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Catherine yes. and I are not crying harm here. Uh, the real harms and violations are what are being suffered by. Um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities across Guatemala at the hands of Canadian mining companies and other mining companies that are working violently together with the Guatemalan military, Guatemalan police, etc. Those are the real harms. That's the real violence. That is the real suffering. We're not crying harm, but they, <laughs> to put it the other way, they kind of defamed us um, because in the process of saying that the book was full of or had defamation and and unsubstantiated information in it, they provided no examples, which is almost like publishing 101. If you're going to publish a book, you have a back and forth process. And so they threw out um, that statement to us in a a communication with us. And as Catherine said, we've been having a very professional back and forth with them for months. And then didn't substantiate it. So they kind of defamed us in a sense and then didn't substantiate their mm-hmm. allegations. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the, the bigger issue here? Um, certainly in North America, the, the, any advice to public people who are working on these issues and want to get them published is go forth and do it. Um, the real problem is not um, the... The, the telling of these truths, but it's kind of like getting them published in any sort of larger, larger media or larger sort of publishing house. Almost everything in this book has been um, published before, or uh, so, um, most of the articles have been published elsewhere before. And then a lot of the information, the testimonials from victims of human rights violations, um, these ones are or this is the first time they would be published, but for 15 years or more, Rights Action has been publishing these very denunciations. But we're a very small operation with a small audience. Um, And I think what happened here is that there was the potential of it getting to a larger audience through a large publishing company, um, and it got blocked because of that. And a lot of this discussion almost begs the question of where's the role of the Canadian media in all this that is rarely doing its job properly in in my opinion to to investigate and report on the breadth of this very systematic canadian problem that's occurring in many countries around the world i think that's a great point graham and you know in a couple times uh, i've i've talked to folks who who kind of loosely and poorly make the case that any sort of activism or advocacy should be moderately dismissed from the business of the of the academy and, and Catherine you you identify yourself as an insurgent researcher so I I'm going to guess you you disagree with that opinion <laughs> um, but one of the uh, 
you know, the, the, the things that have come up as say, you know, is, is academic publishing, uh, a house? Is it, is it, a, is it a space for, uh, taking action against these bigger global issues? And I think your, your book here shows that indeed it is. And the anecdote that, that I'll share just from my own work, uh, when I was doing work on human rights in North Korea, uh, we we discovered um, how Korea was North Korea was financing some of its human rights abuses uh, by by very shady and belligerent maritime traffic, and it involved using uh, uh, some deceptive tactics with insurance companies in in Europe. And so we did research on this, published it, and it wound up that article was cited as part of EU sanctions that then got leveled onto a uh, insurance company in the eu and the next thing you know i have uh, lawyers calling me up saying please retract your article because this has cost us a hundred thousand us dollars in sanctions and uh, i remember very clearly with that it was a conversation quickly to the editor of the journal and say by the way this was sent my way what do you what do you say and uh, in that case the editorial was very strong and they said can you back up what you saw yep uh do you have copies of it yep Okay, leave it in, right? <laughs> right? And, and 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 that's just one of the the reminders that that this very forum, what you're doing, your very project here, isn't just about putting another book on the desk of academia. This stuff has teeth, and and it's it's no no doubt that if people are really behaving poorly, uh, that there's a fear of of exposing truth in this way. Yeah, I think one of the challenges going forward for all academics uh, is really to do socially relevant research, and doing that sometimes, uh, you know, is is uh, a challenge to uh, interests that uh, mm-hmm. haven't been challenged in this way before. And um, I think it it is our our obligation to to do this kind of work and to to make uh, this work known, whether it's in an academic publishing house or not. But uh, I think what we found since making, uh, writing our open public letter, that many people have contacted us since then to say similar kinds of issues have happened to them, that they've been encouraged not to be as vocal in their, in their academic work, to soften out the, the conclusions of their work and so on, because they were in maybe more junior positions or new scholars or graduate students, for example. Um, and, you know, we're kind of in a position where um, we don't have to soften it out. We, we, we know what we wrote is, is uh, truthful and based on the work of a lot of people and a lot of years of experience. And so it's, and it's important. And so we really must stand up against this kind of attempt to silence us. Mm-hmm. And, and Bob, can I circle back? following up on this to an earlier point you made about how the companies are increasingly spending, and this is true certainly in Guatemala where we've worked for years, spending more and more money on sort of um, media work and propaganda about how they're funding schools and, uh, mm-hmm. and health clinics and the like. And I wanted to bring it back to sort of Canada and the silencing of dissenting voices, if you will call, call them that. And the fact that the large Canadian companies give grants of millions of dollars to public and semi-public institutions like universities, and that that in turn, and let alone donations to other institutions, and that in turn becomes 
both a sort of a, a whitewashing of their image in Canada and a silencing of dissenting, dissenting voices. So one of the companies we dealt with, deal with extensively in the book was um, Gold Corp Inc. Um, that more recently got out by Newmont. But Gold Corp has been a huge power player in the, in the, in the international gold mining industry. And it operated for close to 14 years, a very harmful um, open pit cyanide leaching mine in Western, in Mayan territories, indigenous Mayan territories of Western Guatemala. And Rights Action did a huge amount of work there. Um, I went there um, often with Catherine over the course of many years with Catherine's school programs. And um, we were denouncing, documenting and denouncing a wide range of the human rights violations, health harms, environmental destruction, forced evictions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then meanwhile, during these years, as we're documenting and publishing this stuff in Canada, um, through our little networks, sending copies to the Canadian government, sending copies to the Canadian embassy, sending copies to pension funds, public pension funds, the Canada Pension Plan, et cetera. Meanwhile, and getting nowhere fast and getting almost zero response from anyone, through all this, Gold Corp gives tens of millions of dollars in very um, publicized donations to the University of Ottawa, the University of British Columbia, and Simon Fraser University. And so we picked up with our same tactic um, of writing to each and every one of these and starting many campaigns to write to the university saying, uh, how nice that you've got this in infusion of millions of dollars, but did you know that Gold Corp in Guatemala? And then they also had a similar mine in Honduras at the same time that we were very involved with. They were doing all of these harms and violations, and we would chip away at, at, at publicizing this and trying to stir up the pot and got nowhere fast. We almost never even got a response from the universities um, about uh, these very strong allegations, if not facts, we were presenting to them. And I think that that goes to the silencing as well, um, that uh, beneficiaries of sort of corporate largesse, philanthropy as it's called, then turn to become sort of promoters of the very company that's giving them all that money and we'll turn a blind eye to or keep quiet about um, harms and violations um, when they're linked to that particular company that's given them so much money. It's a real, it's a real bombardment of emotions from a student perspective as well. That if you are in the the Gold Corp lecture theater or a building that's been sponsored by Gold Corp, and you are now. Uh, giving over uh, you know you're in a seminar that's critically exploring their operations you know does that create a dichotomy for for students i can i can speak in some of my past teaching where uh, one class in particular that involves exactly topics like this where you're concerned about workers rights and you're concerned about human rights was in a room that was named after one of uh, the, the most famous union busters in all of canada and and you think to yourself, hmm, it, you know, what what is really the optics here, and, and how does the battle play out for for students in this way? I mean, you're I think you're right on the money. It's it's it is a it is a lifetime battle of politics where now the campus is all, is also the the front line of it, and that battle of ideas. It is a battle of ideas, and this is why it seems to us very strongly that the book was quashed because of a battle of ideas. Right. So, Catherine, yeah, go ahead. No, I'm I'm just agreeing with Graham. I think and you. I think this is yeah. This, these are issues that students and 
faculty are grappling with each and every day across the country as they're in lecture theaters named after whether it's Gold Corp or, or others, right. um, and as they're also engaging in really critical discussions in those classrooms. I just want to ask you uh, both one more question, but before I do, I just want to insert this one last comment that the it's a shame that this has happened to to your book, to your work, to everyone who's contributed in their own ways to make this come forward. But at the same time, there's also quite the opportunity here. And, and I think that within a lot of uh, academic circles, especially for graduate students who are wanting to take on global issues that are challenging, that engage human rights from the front lines, there's a lot of trepidation that, that gets thrown into the preparation for that research. And I really hope that educators who teach the, the seminar series or the, the, the preparation for research seminars that are on every single campus, look at your study, look at your case to say, uh, this is, this is the, the nature of what you're up against. And to make this experience a learning moment for graduate study, for graduate students and for young faculty uh, across the country. So, you know, in, in many ways, I'm sad to hear that, that your book uh, is where it is. But at the same time, I think there's a tremendous opportunity to get loud about this and to, to make this like a core lesson within uh, graduate pedagogy. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that. Uh, I think so too. And, and I think, again, this is an opportunity. I'm, I'm pretty confident this book will get published and there are other uh, braver publishers out there who, who want to make sure, progressive publishers who want to make sure that this kind of uh, material is, is out there and available. And I think once that happens, it, again, will be a great showcase for, for how to do things differently and to use this as a, yeah, a, a case study of, uh, mm-hmm. of how you respond uh, in the face of this kind of uh, attempt to silence. Graham, you, you mentioned earlier that one of the, the key arguments for the book or the key statements was that uh, the mining crisis isn't just a, uh, in Guatemala, it's a Canadian issue. Are there any other takeaway messages that you'd like to, to leave us with um, that, the book was, uh, that the book was trying to convey? Uh, yeah, almost a complimentary one to that first conclusion. And, and so I would just, I'll repeat that. And, um, and our book deals with Guatemala, but my work with Rights Action, we've dealt a lot with um, Honduras, and there's been mining struggles there as well. And the conclusion's the same, that in countries like Guatemala and Honduras, um, it is not possible to operate uh, an international mining operation of this nature without uh, benefiting from impunity, like lack of legal resource, lack of political oversight. It's not possible to operate it without participating directly or indirectly in corruption, which should be a crime. It's not possible to operate a mine uh, in these jurisdictions, countries like Guatemala and Honduras, without uh, engaging in human rights violations directly or indirectly, including killings, violent repression, forced evictions, etc. It's just the nature of uh, the global economic order itself that's at play and the nature of countries like Honduras and Guatemala and then the nature of Canadian companies, Canadian investors, and the Canadian government knowingly choosing to do business there. So that's sort of the first major conclusion I referred to earlier. But the flip side of that is why is there so little, if not any, oversight and accountability in Canada 
for our companies and investors when they choose to go and do business in those conditions. And there's, there's a small number of exceptions to what I just said um, and, and addressed in the book as well as one of the exceptions. It's the HUD Bay Minerals lawsuits, civil lawsuits that are working their way through Ontario courts for 10 years and counting. There's been a small number of civil lawsuits in Canadian court courts, tiny number, that have um, you know started to take the first steps towards um, minimal but serious civil liability in Canada for harms in other countries. There is almost no criminal oversight in our in our legal system, even though we have the, the Corruption of Foreign Public Officials Act on the books as law. There's almost no investigation from the Attorney General's Office of Canada ever to pursue cases of what are very apparent corruption in, in, in mining companies' operations in other countries, just to use the mining example. And I would conclude, and I think Catherine agrees with me on this, that in the case of Guatemala, there's very strong indications of Canadian companies operating criminally in, in some of their dealings in these countries, not just causing civil rights, civil civil harms that become subject of uh, civil, um, civil lawsuits, but that they, sh they should be investigated criminally for what they're doing. There's none of that. And so this is another major conclusion of the book, that not only is this a are these harms and violations a major Canadian issue that need to be dealt with in Canada? But why do we not have the political and legal oversight and accountability mechanisms in place to hold our companies and investors fully accountable if and when they commit harms or violations or crimes in other jurisdictions? That's a great point, Graham. Catherine, any final words? Oh, yeah, I think uh, Graham captured it there. I, I think I would end by, by simply saying that um, the book covers the range of those topics that, uh, and serious issues that Graham just mentioned from a range of perspectives. And I just want to, you know, give a shout out to all the people who contributed, who are, who are, you know, right across the country in Canada and in different communities in Guatemala who are, you know, writing about this, standing up for change, working on these legal cases um, in a range of different ways. Um, the artists, the everyday people in communities that are trying to bring this, uh, these issues to the attention of the public and our politicians. And I think we just have to keep going. That's a great point. Catherine Nolan is Professor of Geography and Chair of the Geography Program at the University of Northern British Columbia and identifies as an insurgent researcher and social justice advocate. Graham Russell is a non-practicing Canadian lawyer and since 1995, Director of Rights Action, an organization that works in Honduras and Guatemala to support community, environmental, human rights and territory defenders resisting widespread harms of violence caused by different sectors of the global economy. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Graham, for joining us on this episode of the Global Development Pilot. It's a pleasure. Thank you.